God in heaven, uh, this next several weeks, we get to spend time thinking about what has happened in the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, the miracle stories, the lives that were changed right around that beautiful lake. And I ask that you will bless us now as we look at one of those stories today. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2016, several years ago, Jen, my wife, and I got to go to the Holy Lands. Uh, If you've never been, start saving your money. Skip a cruise, skip a vacation so that you can go and experience the the Holy Lands and going to Israel. It changed my life in so many ways, but definitely changes the way I look at the Bible. And uh, I hope that over these next several weeks, you get a, a small journey through some of the stories that happened at Galilee. We came up through Nazareth, went through past Cana where Jesus did his first miracle, and as we kept coming along, we came to the mountainous region of Galilee, and as we turned the last bend, we saw it. Here's a picture of Galilee. It's beautiful. You can see all the way across. When you think of the Sea of Galilee, you think of the sea, the ocean, like the Atlantic or the the Gulf of Mexico. It's just a lake, guys. It's seven miles by 13 miles across. I mean, there's lakes here in Florida that are bigger than that. It's not a massive lake, but it's beautiful. We, the bus went down to the city of Tiberias. It's right there on the edge of the water. And uh, our hotel was there. We went to sleep that night, and little did I know what I was about to experience the very next day. And as we woke up, the sun was glistening off the water. You can see this is from my hotel room. There's the water through those little trees, right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we just woke up happy. The sun's gleaming in. I'm thinking, man, we are at the Sea of Galilee. Can you believe this? We got on the bus, headed up north around the lake, past a little city called Magdala. Maybe you uh, know of a young lady named Mary that came from that area. The bus continued up to a little city. When I say city, I mean like two buildings. The city of North Ginnisor. Yeah, a pop is a lot easier to say, isn't it? North Guinnessor. It's, it's a, kind of a little fishing town. There's a dock there, and on the dock there's several boats. Here's a picture of one of the boats that uh, was tied up next to the dock. They're kind of old-fashioned looking. And we got on our boat, and the captain um, knew our... Yeah, this is one of the boats that looked just like ours. That's the city of Tiberias behind the boat there. Um, our ship, our boat captain, he was a former Muslim that as Christians had come and they'd taken rides out on the boat, out on the lake, and he'd heard the stories of Jesus over and over and over again, because of those experiences, he gave his life to Christ. Pretty cool story. And as we're there, uh, floating out on the Sea of Galilee, um, he turns on some music there in the boat. And if you're familiar with contemporary Christian music, which many of you are, it was Hillsong's uh, Oceans. so peaceful. Everybody knows that when Hillsong comes on, people give their lives to Jesus, people get baptized. And as we're there floating on the, on the Sea of Galilee and, and Hillsong is played, the captain gets on the speakers and he said, Hillsong actually came and they recorded this song right here on this boat. And I'm thinking, this is cool, we're here. The water's peaceful and placid. There's no waves, which I think is uh, unusual for that time of year. And as we're there standing uh, on the boat, I'm looking around, kind of just taking it all in. Our whole crew, here's a picture of the the whole group that was with us. The guy on the right-hand side, his name's Andy Nash. Maybe you know him. He's a teacher, a pastor, um, an author, an incredible guy, and he was our tour guide. And it just so happened that he and I were standing next to each other as we're looking around, and and, uh, I said, Andy, what am I looking at here? 
it's just, it's just water and mountains. What, what am I looking at? And his voice got kind of quiet, and he said, well, Matt, do you see that little rocky knoll over there? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, that's where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you see that little city that's up on the hill? He said, that's the city on the hill that doesn't, that, as Jesus talks about. He said, Matt, you see over here, there's this little town? I said, yeah, I see it. He says, that that's the town of Capernaum. That's where the paralytic was let down through the roof and Jesus healed him. He said, Matt, do you see these cliffs over here? I said, yeah, yeah, I see them, I see them. He says, that's the Gadarenes. That's where the two demoniacs were with the demons inside them and Jesus cast the demons out into the pigs and the pigs ran into the lake. And as I'm standing there, I feel tears come to my eyelids and down my cheeks. And if no one had been on that boat, I would have sat down and wept because I was in the middle of the Bible. All around me, the stories of Jesus and what he's done, it's right around me. After our cruise, we got back in the bus and we drove up around to the top side of the lake. In fact, I think there's a map here. You can kind of see it. Um, the, the yellow spot on the left is Tiberias. That's where our hotel was. But up around the top of the lake is Tabga. It's not much of a town. There's really just a church there. In fact, the Catholic Church has gone through most of these sites and built churches there, almost like uh, ownership of these different places. And while I feel like the church takes away from the, the, the space, it doesn't take away from the story of what happened at Tabga. And our bus pulled up there, and we climbed out of the bus, and we went down to this little amphitheater. Here's a picture of it. And there's Andy as he told us his story, and as he read through a story in the Bible that we'll focus on today. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to John chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's one right in front of you. It's the Pew Bible. It's blue. Um, and you can follow along on page 769. Um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we're in the New Testament, and we're in the Gospels. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get John as an eyewitness account of what happened on this, in this uh, specific occasion. And as you're turning there, I'll give you some context about Tabga. Um, Jesus has already died. He's already risen. Mary's already seen him at the garden tomb. He's already seen the disciples. And now seven of these disciples have traveled back to the Sea of Galilee to reminisce. They're there thinking of all the wonderful experiences that they've had there at the Sea of Galilee, the, the memories that they've shared. This is home for them. So many of them grew up right there. And so they go back, and, and while they're hanging out and talking about different things, one of them gets hungry. And I don't blame the guy. I mean, I'm always hungry. So this guy, his name's Peter, you know him well. He says, guys, let's go fishing. Now, Tabga, at the northern part of the lake, is right where a spring comes into the lake. It's where some of the water comes into the Sea of Galilee. The bottom flows out the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea. But this little spring at Tabga, it bubbles up and gurgles and, and pushes the water into the lake. In fact, here's a picture of me uh, getting some of that water. Before we went on the trip, uh, I had hair. Uh, did you know that? Before we went on the trip, I went on Amazon and I got these plastic vials so I could collect some of the water from different places that we stopped. The Pool of Siloam, Pool of Bethesda, uh, Dead Sea. I got a bunch of it. Jordan River. It's in my office if you want to see it sometime. But this one is the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's kind of gross right now. I think um, five years of sitting in this vial has turned into a science experiment a little bit. Kind of gross. Uh, there's little seashells in the bottom. In fact, the whole shore is made of these little tiny seashells. And the fish love this area. 
It's the little, uh, whatever, food and stuff that gets trapped in these shells. It gets pushed out by the spring, and so there's fish galore all over here. And so Peter, as he's here at the northern end of the lake, he says, guys, let's go fishing. Let's go get some fish. And so our story talks about this fish. And if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Here's the story. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And we pause there for a second just so that you can see what's happening. I mean, I'm a very visual person, and so I, I read the Bible through eyeballs instead of just words, so I see what's happening. So they've been fishing all night, and you've got seven dudes in a, in a boat. They're going around. It's dark all night. The sun is just starting to rise up, but it, it hasn't crested the horizon yet. Remember, there's mountains all the way around this lake. It's just the glow of the sun is coming up on their, on their right, the eastern side, as they're heading back to shore. They're heading back up to Tabga. And as they're coming along, they're depressed, they're, they're sad, and they see someone on the beach. They can't see his face. It's dark. Maybe it's misty, but they can't tell who it is. They just know someone's there. And he gives them the most ridiculous instructions ever. He says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. Jewish tradition says that in the morning, as the sun rises, as the sun comes over those mountains and it floods the lake with sunlight, there's only one last chance to get fish, and it's on the left side of the boat. Because fish like the darkness. Any fishermen in here? Ah, Dr. Offenbeck, right there, he's a fisherman. I'll tell you what, we've got some good fishers, fishermen in our church. Pastor Mark Reams, he regularly sends me pictures of him catching these massive fish that he catches, and he kind of has a smug smirk on his face. Look at this bad boy. Here's another one. Uh, I don't know if you know him. His name is Kenny, Kenny Kittrell, Lisa and Tink's son. He lives on Prairie Lake in Altamont Springs. The boy is a fisherman. He feeds his fish right off his dock every day. In fact, at, when he goes on vacation, he gets neighbors to come over and feed the fish so that his fish have a great place to be. And, and he, uh, that guy can throw a, a line in and catch a fish every single time. And every fisherman knows that fish like darkness. They'll be under the dock. They'll be in the deep weeds. They'll be hiding where you can't see them. And as these disciples are in their boat, as they're coming north to Tabga, the sun rises in the east to their right, and the only spot of darkness left is the shadow created by the boat that's on the left. And so as they hear this stranger, a nobody, they don't know who he is, he says, throw your nets on the right side, on the light side, on the wrong side. It's ridiculous. It's preposterous. And it's interesting that these guys, maybe they're just used to being around Jesus and knowing that when he asks them to do something, good things happen. Even if they don't know it's him yet, but they're, they're used to this idea. 
Maybe they're adventurous. Maybe they just want to try something with their faith. What's your adventurous level, your adventure level right now, especially when it comes to God asking you to do something? I feel like the majority of Christians have become skeptical. God says, hey, you, you think he might be telling you to do something. You say, ah, I don't know. I might know better. God says, you should move. I don't know, God. God says, you need to change your jobs. Oh, God, I don't know about this. And we become skeptics rather than faithful followers. Skeptics. Just uh, a lot too long ago, I was on Craigslist. I love classifieds. Facebook Marketplace, I'm the king of face marketplace. Facebook Marketplace, if you need something, I can help you buy it. Facebook Marketplace classifieds, Craigslist classified. I've, I don't even remember what I was buying, but I messaged this guy and I said, hey, do you still have your item? And uh, are you flexible on your price? I mean, those are the two natural questions that everybody asks on every single thing. And he responds with this. He says, no thanks, sounds like a scam. I was offended. I have the money to buy his item, yet because he's skeptical, he misses out on the real deal. And I wonder how many times we as Christians, because of our skepticism, because of our unbelief, because we think we might know better than God, we don't follow through with even the ridiculous things that he asks us to do. For some reason, these disciples follow through with what he's asked them to do because they believe. You know, as I was in Galilee, the Holy Lands, the, the place where Jesus walked, there was one thing that came to me over and over and over again, and you would think that as you walk in the footsteps of Jesus that your faith would be confirmed and affirmed and you would be just uh, even more bolstered as a Christian, and yet as you stand there in Galilee, as you visit the places where Jesus was, you, you realize how human he was. He walked like everybody else. He talked like everybody else. He ate like everybody else. And the question that always came to my mind over and over again was this. If I had been there when Jesus was there, would I have believed? Would you have believed? And the disciples, as they hear him give these instructions, even though they're depressed they're downtrodden, they're failures at their own trade. They're fishermen, and they have failed, not catching a single fish. Even though they are feeling worthless, they follow with this stranger's commands. Here's what happens in the story. Verse 6, it says this. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, pause for a second with the passive-aggressive John as he struts his own self, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around it, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Pause for a second for the visual. You might not like this visual because it's a little bit risque. Because uh, you've got the fishermen, they're in the boat. John says, that's Jesus. I, I recognize a miracle. This has just happened. It can only come from him. That's Jesus on the shore. And when he says that's Jesus, Peter, who is buck naked, you can read it if you've got King James Version. It says it in there. He's naked. Maybe he's got his whitey tighties on or some boxers. He pulls on some gym shorts, and he does a gainer double backflip swan dive into the Sea of Galilee like the Olympics last week. 
Nothing will get in his way as he goes to be with Jesus. And as I, as I look at the courage and the, um, just the, the movement of Peter, it challenges me because I wonder how often are we so timid when we go to Jesus? We're worried what other people are going to think. We're, we, we ask timid prayers and, and, and hope for the best, but we're not willing to do whatever it takes to get to him. Peter says, forget it. I'll put some clothes on, but that's about it. I am getting to Jesus no matter what. And I wonder if you're at the same level as Peter this morning, where you're willing to do whatever it takes to get to him. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. The disciples, except for Peter, because he jumped in the water and swam over there, the disciples, they all converge on this beach. And Jesus, who is concerned not only with our spiritual well-being, but our physical well-being too, he already has a fire going. He already has fish frying. He's already got some bread made. Verse 10, it says this, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And I pause there for a second because it kind of looks like Jesus is a bad planner. What kind of a host doesn't know how many people are going to be at the party? What did he plan on four disciples and seven were there and so he needed more fish? Why would he ask them for their fish? I mean, just a quarter mile down the coast of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and some bread. He could create it. He could have spoken and there would be more fish, yet he asked the disciples for their fish, and I can only think that Jesus asks the disciples for their fish so that they get to be a part of the miracle that he's doing. And I wonder sometimes if we miss out on being a part of God's miracles because we just wait for him to do something rather than using what he's already given us to be a part of the miracle. It's like Jesus says, I'm going to work miracles in your life. Look at the net I just filled with fish. I'm going to work miracles in your life, but I need you to be willing to use what I've already given you. It's almost like Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that he's given you talents and abilities and skills and finances and all of the above, a nice home to host people. He's given it to you so that you can be a part of what he's already doing. And John, as he records what happens here, as, as Jesus asks for their fish and they start counting the fish out, he records a very specific number. It's in your Bible, 153. Not about 150. Not uh, 100 to 200 fish. 153. And I believe that John wanted every reader that would ever read this story to know that two things happened. One, that this story is as legit as they come, not just a random number. They caught some fish, but they caught 153. And he also wanted everyone to read this story and know that Jesus was alive, and he had died, and the Savior was back alive, and you got it in the story. Jump to verse 15, where we get a part of the story that I believe has rich application for us. It's the part of the story that you know pretty well. Maybe you've never heard this story. If you haven't, you're going to get the story. You probably have heard a lot of this story. It's the part of the story where on the beach, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times. You remember this part. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Jesus probably speaking Hebrew or Aramaic or something else. He gets translated into Greek, and I'm so glad because it means so much more in Greek. As Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you agape love me? You know agape love. It's the, it's the wholehearted, not holding anything back, totally committed kind of love. He says, Peter, do you fully commit to me, love me? 
It's the kind of a, a love that, that you see at a wedding where the groom and the bride, they stand in front of each other and they give these vows, whether they're the standard version or they've written their own vows, but they profess their undying, wholehearted, not holding anything back kind of love, agape love for someone else for the rest of time. And Jesus says, Peter, do you agape love me? And Peter comes back with, I phileo love you. Phileo, brotherly love, like you guys. Ethan and Colin, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Phileo. As I'm trying to think of how to convey this to you, the only illustration that I can come up with is for the men. I'm sorry, ladies, you have to sit on the sidelines for this one, but you can probably gain some of this, but I don't know if you'll understand it completely. So you fellas, listen up, because you'll get this. Every guy in here probably has another guy friend that you're incredibly close to. I'm not talking about parents or siblings outside of your family. Maybe it's uh, roommates. Maybe it's just uh, really close friends that you grew up with. It might even be neighbors. I just left one of, my, one of my boys up in Marietta, my neighbor. He was such a great guy. Like we were so close. He's, he's one of these guys for me. Every one of us has one. Um, this is the kind of guy that if, if they called you and said, hey man, I need a place to crash, you would say, mi casa es su casa. Right, Sandra? Isn't that how you say it in Espanol? Nailed it. I'm pro already. You would say, come stay at my house. You can have my house. This, this is the kind of, of friendship of someone that um, if they were a thousand miles away and they broke down in their car, you would drive a thousand miles to go help them because you love them that much. This is someone that if they called you and they said, I, I need money, you would say, here's everything I have because I love you this much. But there's a weird part about guys and I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe there's a homophobe in all of us. I don't know what it is. But we, we, we have a hard time saying, I love you. It just gets weird. And so instead of saying, I love you, we fellas, we shorten it in a lot of different ways. Love you. Just the other week, I was texting a friend of mine. His name's Scott. And in our conversation, here's what, here's what, uh, here's what came up. Uh, I blocked out everything else so you can't see it. But he said, thumbs up, love you. And I said, you too, buddy. <laughs> it's about as basic as you can get, right? That's, that's some bro love back and forth, but it's not all the way. And as Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I love you, bro. <laughs> Jesus says, I love you. And Peter says, me too, buddy. Jesus says, do you fully commit your life to me and love me more than everything else? And Peter says, yeah, I love you, bro. And it's in verse 15 that I see something that I think is so applicable to our life. As Jesus begins to start this conversation with Peter, he says this. Verse 15 says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now this is where your seventh grade English grammar class comes into play. You never thought you'd use it again, did you? Because at the end of that sentence, the word these is a pronoun. If I'm wrong, you'll have to tell me later. Don't, don't tell me now. It's a pronoun. And somebody tell me what pronouns are. What do they do? They take the place of a noun. 
he, she, it, we, you, they. These are some pronouns. Now, here's the thing. With all pronouns, there's always an antecedent. That's a big word. I had to look it up. Pronouns always go back to the antecedent to tell you what they're talking about. Are you bored yet? Have you fallen asleep yet? I see some nodding. Okay, let's make this a little more practical. I've given you an example. I love cookies. They make me happy. Can I get a witness, somebody? Oh, man. yes, sir. You and me, buddy. Cookie monsters. I love cookie, chocolate chip, oatmeal, raisin, macadamia nut. Those little ones at Christmas time, little peanut butter ones with the forks in them. You know, you can put a Hershey kiss right in the middle, sugar cookies, molasses cookies. I will eat all the cookies. I'm a cookie guy. They're so good. I love cookies. They make me happy. The, the pronoun is they. The antecedent is cookies. They refers back to the antecedent cookies. So here's the million dollar question this morning. Verse 15 says this, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What is the antecedent of these? You can look back. Most scholars would say that the these refers back to the disciples, but that sounds ridiculous. Because if you're on the beach with Jesus and the disciples, what does it look like? Jesus comes over to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Jesus isn't going to do that. I don't think it's the disciples. If we were sitting on the beach and just eavesdropping on the conversation, I think that Jesus would have done this. I think he would have come up to Peter and he would have picked up a fish. That's Peter's livelihood. That's Peter's profession. It's what Peter's good at. It's what he loves to do. It's what he's spent his life doing. It's what everybody knows him by. He's a fisherman. It's his identity. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, yeah, I love you, bro. What are the these in your life? I've got some applications here and I don't know if they, if they fit and if they do, if the shoe fits, put it on. If they don't, then just keep going. But I'm wondering what makes it difficult for you to fully commit to Jesus and become a fully devoted Jesus follower and disciple maker. Some of you, you struggle and cling to a lifestyle, whether that means possessions or stuff. Um, I mean, we live in an affluent Adventist community. There's a lot of money floating around here, and it causes us to do weird things. Whether you have financial means or you don't, we all want to appear like we do, don't we? We all want to give off this persona of wealth and doing so well and fitting in. And I wonder, does Jesus say this morning, do you love me more than these? Some of you this morning, you hold on to baggage 
Something's happened. It happened in the past. It could be divorce. It could be uh, miscarriage. It could be uh, something that happened to you personally. And you hold on to it, and it holds on to you, and it keeps you back from fully committing to Jesus. And this morning, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Some of you this morning, you're, what you cling to is relationships, bad ones, ones that n- you know are pulling you down and away from Jesus, ones that aren't lifting you and, and bringing you closer to him. And Jesus says to you this morning, do you love me more than these? Some of you, you cling to drama. Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Uh, whatever drama looks like, negativity, um, fault finding, you're the first to point a finger and say, ah, it was your fault. Uh, whether your drama is at work or it's at home or it's at school, you just feed off of it because it makes you feel valuable. You love to debate and, and publicly uh, obliterate people about mask wearing or how long it takes to pick up your kids at fleece and you thrive on the drama in your life, and Jesus says, do you love me more than these? This morning, I want to make an appeal to you this morning. Appeals can be awkward. I don't think it needs to be. Here's my appeal, and I'm going to invite you to come forward so that I can have a special prayer for you this morning. But I believe that the Holy Spirit has spoken to so many hearts today, and I think he's nudged many of you to feel ready to say, God, I don't want these anymore. I want to fully commit to you. You could be a lifelong Adventist. This applies to you. You could be a newbie Christian. And this applies to you too. So I'm going to step down here on the floor and I'm going to invite you, those that feel like you want to say, God, I love you more than these. I want you to come up here and I'm going to pray with you a special prayer over you. So come on down, those of you who want. If you're in the balcony, you can come down. I'll make time for you. You can come down. There's some coming already. And I want to have a special prayer over you and your life and your decision. This isn't necessarily a decision for baptism. It's just a decision that says, God, I love you more than these. Man, I'm glad you're here, brother. Yeah, you guys are awesome. First service, we, we filled the aisle down here. Um, that's awesome. Young and old, here's the cool thing. Nobody knows what you're talking about except for God and you. So you get that opportunity. So come on down, wherever you're at, and I want, I want to pray a special prayer for you. Thanks for coming. I, you got time. There's no hurry. doesn't matter what people think. This is for you. <laughs> All right. That's good. Come on down. some from the balcony coming all the way down the stairs that's good we'll wait for you and whether you're standing up here or you're sitting in the pews this is a special prayer for you so uh, all right let me pray for us this morning as you you can still come if you'd like heavenly father today you have a church that collectively says we love you more than these. Whatever those these are, I pray that you give us uh, courage to move forward with them, beyond them, closer to you. God, I pray for this group of people that are standing up here up front. Uh, They felt the Holy Spirit move in their hearts today. 
and I ask that you will um, really move in a strong way to give them power to move beyond the these. May they, uh, their commitment today be something that is lasting. Help them to be refreshed each morning with your mercies and your grace, but also your courage as they move beyond. God, we love you, and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.